For all those that have commented on my dress today, I did not lose a bet. Just wanted to look smart. It is a special day. And what a special day this is. I'd be grateful if you turn in your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 16. Today is a special day, firstly because it's Father's Day. And so as Brendan said, congratulations to all the fathers here. I trust you have a special a special day. I had a special morning already. I got gifts from the kids. Liam has brought me, wait for this, it's very special. He's brought me a book on how to build an Italian fruit and vegetable garden. <laughs> and for all those that know me, how used that is going to be. But I said, oh, son, I, you know, this is so great, fruit and veg. And he's like, yes, they told me it was a book for smart people. <laughs> I said, yes, well, good choice. <laughs> So, if you see me with Italian herbs, Jamie Oliver, from here on in, that'll be me. It's a special day because it's Father's Day. It's also a very special day because it's our nine-year anniversary. We have the privilege of ordaining Riley Spring and sending out a wonderful team to go plant a church in Parramatta. This is a day that we prayed for nine years ago today, unaware of how the Lord would answer it. But what a faithful God we serve. I felt a special day needed a special message, and so I've called this message Our Story of Unchanging Grace. And let's read together Matthew chapter 16. We're going to read from verse 13 to the end of verse 18. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we do thank you for your word. Your word that never changes. From generation to generation to generation, it does not move. But Lord, it does call us to move. And so, Lord, would you bless the preaching of your word today? Would you open our eyes? Would this be a wonderful trip down memory lane as we point the finger to you and your goodness? Lord, did you delight in us as we today delight in you? In Jesus' name, amen. Ralph Goodall was an outstanding golfer. He played golf in the 1930s and was unique and that he won back-to-back U.S. Opens, as well as winning the Masters Championship, all by the time he was just 27 years old. Even though Ralph is so rarely heard of today, it was said of him that he was the best golfer in the world during that season of time. But during his 27th year of life, Ralph suddenly seemed to lose all his golfing ability. He so-called fell off a cliff with regard to his golf. The reason for this is that he wrote a book about how to play golf. Part of the process of doing that involved a man taking pictures of him, playing different golf shots, pictures that would then be put together in the style of a flip book, where you flip the pages and the pages become like a moving picture. Unfortunately, 
As this was being prepared, the photographer took pictures of Ralph's golf swing from what appeared to be a strange angle. The camera was too far in front of Ralph, and so when Ralph looked later at the pictures, it appeared that the golf ball was too far in front of him during his swing. As Ralph studied the pictures over some time, it got into his mind that he was playing the ball in the wrong place, and so he decided to change his entire golf swing. As a result, Ralph Goodall never recovered his good golf form ever again. His game simply disappeared, and he completely fell off the rankings, all because of a wrong perspective. So, my friends, in all of life, perspective matters. For Ralph Goodall, perspective really mattered. Because of a wrong perspective of a photographer, he changed his entire golf swing, and he never became good at golf ever again. And in all the Christian life, perspective matters in that as well. When we're walking through trials or marriage difficulties or work situations or relationships, perspective matters. What we believe about God in those moments, what we stand on in His Word, makes a profound difference to the way we live our lives. And perspective matters in church planting as well. Nine years ago, we realized how important perspective was. And as these guys start out on their journey today, they too, I believe, need to understand God's perspective when it comes to the local church. Where is he in the local church? How does this work? Are we building it for him? How does this play out? How does he interact with the local church? Well, I believe the Lord wants to give Sovereign Grace Church of Parramatta and Sovereign Grace Church of Sydney a divine perspective today on how he interacts with the church. And here's what I want you to know. It is him, Jesus Christ himself, who is truly building his church. It's him. It's Jesus It's the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the one that is at the bottom of it all. It is Him and Him alone who is ultimately building His church. And they're not my words. They're His words. Right here in Matthew chapter 16. See, in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus has come to the district of Caesarea Philippi and He asks His disciples, "Who, Who do you say that I am? And they do what most people do. They don't really answer the question. They answer the question in terms of, well, this is what other people say about you. So some people say you're John the Baptist. Some people say you're Elijah. Some people say Jeremiah. Maybe another prophet. But Jesus pins them and says, yes, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, on behalf of all the apostles, as it says in the Gospel of Mark, he says, well, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's the first time in the gospel he's proclaimed to be exactly who he actually is. You're the Christ, the Son of God. And at that point, Jesus looks Peter in the eye on behalf of all the other apostles and says, Listen, to you then and on you, I will build my church. Peter, listen up. And the disciples and apostles, listen up. You are going to go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth and I want you to know through you I will build my church. I, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who was and is and is to come, the Alpha and Omega, the one who breathed life and voice through the burning bush. I will. This is something we can be sure of, something we can know, something we can stand on. I will build. 
I will take people from different tribes and languages and nations and I will build them together into my church. My church. A church that I will give my life for. They're not just going to be random numbers. They're going to be people that I bled for and died for and then together I'm going to build them together into a royal priesthood. A chosen race. A treasured possession. A temple. People from different languages and nations and cultures, but I'm going to take them all as bricks and I'm going to put them together into the context of a local church. I'm going to make them brothers and sisters. Family. People that don't just go around call themselves bro or sis, but actually stick closer than a brother. People that are a body. People that will be my hands and my feet on this earth and people that will be my bride that I will lay my life down for and then return for. Peter, listen up. I will build my church. Isn't that beautiful? Imagine the inspiration they would have got from that 2,000 years ago. The faith and confidence they would have had to go, understanding we must go and we'll play a part, but ultimately it is him who will build it. 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ was building local churches. And I want to encourage you, that's exactly what he's still doing today. He's at the bottom of it all. It's always him. It is him, Jesus Christ himself, who is truly building his church. And I really felt the Lord want to impress this on our hearts today. For you guys, as you leave us and start a new church, Sovereign Grace Church of Parramatta, And for us guys that remain and stay, this is our confidence. And this is our hope. And this is our joy. And this is our surety. The reality that he will build his church. It's always been the story. And it always will be. And to that end this morning, I want to give us a bit of a trip down memory lane. I want us to... Recollect the past so that we may stand forward with faith for the future. And so I have three points which you can make notes on if you like, but you don't really have to. You can just listen up. It's going to be one giant testimony. But here's the first thing I want you to understand this morning. I want you to understand that without doubt, this whole Sovereign Grace Church Sydney story really did start with him. It didn't start with us. We're not that good. It really did start with him. I mean, I remember when I was starting out as a church planter, I got told that church planting is like trying to get a raft full of people off a desert island. I remember filing that away and thinking, how, how interesting. And then I planted a church, and you know what it's like? It's like a raft full of people trying to get off a desert island. That's what it's like. You're rowing. You're rowing as if your life depends on it, just trying to get off the island. And it felt like that for some time when we moved to Australia in 2010 to seek to plant this local church. And yet, even in the difficulties that we faced when we started, here's what kept us going. What kept us going was remembering how it was God that had started this and not us. It was his initiative and not ours. And that changed everything. See, our story as a church started actually back in 2004 through a man by the name of Mike Paslich, which many of you would know. Some of you are related to him. 
Mike had started to read Sovereign Grace books and listen to Sovereign Grace messages some, uh, well, 15 years ago now. And they deeply impacted his life to the point where he wrote to C.J. Mahaney, he's the founder of Sovereign Grace Churches globally, he wrote to C.J. asking, could we plant a Sovereign Grace Church in Australia? Well, C.J. wrote back and said, listen, thank you so much, Mike, for your interest in Sovereign Grace. It's just a bit too far for us to really know how we would do that and care for you over there. But God bless you, my friend. We'll be praying for you as the future unfolds. Well, Mike Paslich, for those that know him, he doesn't understand the word no. So he carried on. So he rewrote again about six weeks later and said, Dear CJ, I understand that it is a long way, but I think this is what the Lord wants us to do. And Would you reconsider? And through a long series of events, Mike in March 2005 actually headed to the United States. Sorry, in 2006, he headed to the United States, leaving everything in Sydney, moved to the United States and started to do an internship in a Sovereign Grace Church, all on the premise of, if you won't come to us and plant, then maybe I'll come to you and get trained how to plant and come back and do it myself. Well, in 2007, of August 2007, Mike um, started attending the Sovereign Grace Pastors College same college that, that Riley's been to and that I went to in the year 2000. And he attended that college. And during that year, it, as it came to an end, the, the plan was to, for him to come back to Australia and, and plant Sovereign Grace Church here in Australia. It was actually going to be in Newcastle. Imagine that. We would have been in Newcastle, not here. That would have been different. But it was the plan was that he would go to Newcastle and plant the church. And he wasn't still 100% sure that he was going to be able to do it. But it was decided that he would come to Christchurch, Wales, which is the church that I was the executive pastor of, to do his internship before he planted back here. And part of my role was to help train him towards planting in Australia. Part of the reason why he was chosen to come to the UK is because our cultures are a little bit more similar, particularly in mission, um, than often where the United States is at. And during that year, I got to know Mike, um, Mike and Sarah. He got married and he came to Christchurch, Wales, and it was a wonderful year. But during that year, Mike himself wasn't sure that he was definitely able to plant the church, and as I assessed him along with the rest of the team, we all came to the place of, hey, I don't think God has given you all the gifts necessary to plant a church. And he was like, oh, phew. You know, that's, that's good. And, but we're like, well, what are we going to do now? We're like, well, we're not sure. We need to pray it all through. And, and then became the infamous breakfast with my wife. Was it Debenhams? Where were we? BHS. Oh, they were the best. We used to go out for breakfast sometimes on a Monday morning on my day off and and so we went out for breakfast one morning and, and Emma was just asking, just randomly, I mean, she'd never been to Australia. I'd only been for five days to consider where Mike wanted to plant. And she just said, well, what's happening with Australia now? And I started to go into like preacher mode about, well, you know, Mike's really not going to be able to do it. He doesn't feel in a place to do it. I think that's the right thing. And she said, well, what type of guy would be needed to go to Australia and plant a church? Well, I go into leader mode at this point. It's like flipboard. Woo, okay, well, there's all these things. So I start listing off the things that I think, darling, all these things would be necessary for somebody to go plant there. It'd be really hard. At which point she interjects. I mean, I'm halfway through my toast and beans at this point, describing this story. And she interjects and says, well, you sound like that type of guy. And she laughed. And I laughed. And then our laugh began to change. <laughs> we knew there and then God was bringing us to Australia. I'd been on a five-day trip. My wife had never been. We were the most contented couple in Wales at the time. Had no intention of going anywhere. I owned a house. Imagine that. <laughs> I know. 
owned a house. We had three wonderful children. Our families were in the church. The plan was at some point for me to become the senior pastor of Christ Church and take on Sovereign Grace Churches of the United Kingdom and start a pastor's college where we were and really start to move forward in, in the UK. And I thought that's what we'd be doing for the rest of our lives. And I was very happy about that. But as Emma laughed and I laughed, we knew in that moment, it's only happened to me twice in my life, we knew in that moment God is doing something. And in truth, it was somewhat overwhelming. It was very difficult to get our heads around. To the point where I still remember walking away from that breakfast and I was saying, okay, let's not talk about it for the rest of the day because that's too much. And she's like, yes, let's not talk about it. So we went home, we tried to get our minds off it because it was actually like, oh my goodness, do you think God's doing this? I hope not. You know, it was just like, this is crazy. So we went home and we turned the television on and the program that was on was Wanted Down Under. <laughs> I kid you not, it's a UK program about people moving to Australia and how they find it. And you're like, you are kidding me. Hit the DVD. So she hits the DVD. It's the Wiggles live at the Sydney Opera House. I kid, seriously. You couldn't make this stuff up. Talk about God getting your attention. So we're like, no more TV for the rest of the day. It's dangerous. Stuff comes out of that screen. Well, for about a couple of weeks, we really just sat on it, just Emma and I, and we prayed it through, and we wondered, you know, was that just a bad breakfast? Was the sausage dodgy? What was the issue there? What was going on? But eventually, after a couple of weeks, we realized, I think the Lord may be in this, and so... I approached our senior pastor and my friend Pete Greasley about the idea and just told him the story of what we felt the Lord might have put on our hearts. And, and I never forget, never forget the, his facial expression or the meeting. He came into my office. I said, hey, I've got something to talk to you about. I, I think the Lord might have put on our heart to move to Australia. And he's like, uh-huh. Well, thank you for thinking about it. No. <laughs> but thanks for thinking about it. Now, the way I think of counsel is I'm submitted to counsel. And I understand at the end of the day, if he's going to give an account to God for me and he's watching over my soul, I'm pretty cool with that. And so he said no, but he did say as he left my room, he said, listen, no, but I will pray about it. And I'm like, that's cool. So I remember ringing Emma up. She said, oh, what did he say? I said, darling, he said no. And she said, oh my goodness, that's a relief. I said, yes, I know. We were, we were completely fine with it. But the weeks went on and we still lived with this sense that I think the Lord might want us to stray. There's only myself, my wife and Pete Greasy that knows at the time. Well, we just had a number of things that happened to us in that season. I remember Patrick, the one who would say he's the least sort of prophetic on our team, writing to me during that season. He barely knows me and just said, hey, I'm just wondering, I think the Lord might have put it on my heart to tell you that maybe you should come to Australia and plan the church. He had no clue I was thinking about that. I don't know what least prophetic actually means on the team when they're coming out with things like that. But that was incredibly affirming to us. Remember as well, Cody and Christina, arranging appointment. They came from the same church. Arranging appointment with Pete Greasy. They just wanted to chat to him about something. So we often pastored in prayers in the UK. It was a significant um, big church. And so, I'm like, so he said, oh, can you sit in with me when they come in? I'm like, sweet, yeah, I can do that. And so I sat down and they came in and, hey, guys, how are you going? And so what do you want to talk to us about? And they said, well, you know, this might be strange, but we just sensed that the Lord might want us in Australia. And I'm sitting there going, mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, that's interesting. I couldn't tell him anything. He had already said no. My pastor said no. But it was another moment where you're like, oh, my goodness. The Lord seems to be moving in this and 
I remember after a couple of months, I remember after a couple of months, I remember waking up one night and, and my wife was crying next to me in bed. And I woke up and I'm like, hey, what's up? What's the matter, darling? And she said, well, I still think the Lord's going to have it in Australia. And I'm just trying to get my head and heart around it to what it's going to be like to leave home. I love you. All these things began to happen. And so we were out for breakfast again one morning and we were chatting through, should we go speak to Pete again? I mean, this is kind of awkward. And we decided on that Monday that we wouldn't go and speak to him again, that if God was in this, this would be such a massive move to us. We wanted to know it's all the Lord. The very next day, 9 o'clock in the morning, he knocks on my office door and he said, all right, where are you out with Australia? I'm like, buddy, we still think that God might be moving us there. And he's like, so do I. I'm not going to wrestle with God anymore. If you want to go, then we're going to back it 100%. You can go and we support it. And we agreed. And we spoke to the rest of the pastoral team about it. They were all in good heart about it. And so we decided that we were going to move to Australia. We informed family and so on and so forth. And for the rest of 2009 and early 2010, it was remarkable about how God started to bring people that were going to start to form a planting team. We didn't intend to take people, a group of Brits, 10,500 miles to go plant a church in Australia. We knew there would have to be local people, if God was in this, Australians, to help build the local church. And it was a cool season. I remember Simon and Michelle Wood coming and talking to us about that the Lord had put on their heart years ago to move to Australia. I say the Lord put on his heart. I think it was probably more surfing and beach, but... <laughs> The Lord had put on his heart via surfing and beach that they were going to plan to go to North um, Australia. That was a big reason why Simon studied what he did in nursing to move to Australia. But how the Lord had put on their heart instead to maybe come to Sydney with us and help plant a church and build a church. That was inspiring. That is a huge change of plan. But they were all in to do it. Like in Sarah Paslitz, you know, when it, when it was clear that he wasn't just going to leave the church, it wasn't sure, well, I wonder what they'll do now, whether they'll live in the States or live here or what they'll want to do. And straight away, they're like, if you're coming, we're 100% behind it. We'll move back to Australia and we'll start gathering people and prepare for your arrival. Patrick and Meg Chavez, these guys by now had already moved to Newcastle, thinking that Mike was going to lead it and you're in Newcastle. And I remember having that conversation with them saying, hey, listen, there's good news and there's bad news. The good news, I hope, is that I'm actually coming out to lead the church. And he was like, oh, this is great. Yes, but there's a bad news. The bad news is I believe the Lord wants us in Sydney, where you just moved from. It was awkward. But these guys were full of faith and full of grace. And were like, if you're coming out, we're moving back. We want to help build this thing. I remember a young single man approaching me and writing to me. He said he was a misho. Now, as a Brit, no one understands what a misho is. So you're like, a misho? Like, what on earth is that? His name was a Brendan Willis. And so I said, okay, let's get a Skype call. And so we got a Skype call and we started to communicate over Skype. And we're like, hey, buddy, what? what, what Tell me about you. And he's like, well, I'm in Indonesia. I remember the phone being real crackly. I'm in Indonesia, but I've heard about Sovereign Grace, and I wonder if I'm called to ministry, but that's a bit by the by. I just want to help build a local church. I'm like, cool. Let's do it. 
And straight away he's like, listen, I've read everything that you've sent me. I've read all the different stuff and I love this. I want to give my life to this. And I said even then, mate, there's no guarantees of ministry or anything. And he's like, I'm cool with that. I just want to be where God wants me to give myself to this. And then I remember there was a young couple called Jesse and Liz Fenn who contacted me. Now when anybody contacted me, I did what everybody does. You go on Facebook and see their face. Okay? So Jesse Fenn, so I'm like Facebook. Whoa! And as soon as I put it in and I see this guy with tats and rings on it, whoa! I'm not sure we're ready for this type of guy in Sovereign Grace Church. But straight away he's like, listen, where are you planting? Because Sydney's a massive place. And we're like, listen, probably the Hornsby, Normanhurst area. And he's like, oh my goodness, we live in Arcadia. We could come. And if you remember how God used them for many years in our church and serving, you just realize it was all the Lord. All those early days, they were very, very exciting days. And here's why. Because they were days marked by God's initiative. This story didn't start with us. It started with the Lord. And I believe the Lord never wants us to lose sight of that. If we forget that, we can start to think it's us that has to make it happen. But when you realize it was always the Lord, it changes everything. This whole sovereign grace story has started with him. And the truth is, number two, he is the one who is still building us today. It's always been him. It's not like he's got us here and then now over to you guys. It's, okay, I've got you there. Now I'm going to start building with you. And that's what he's done. One of the privileges of being a pastor is you get to see up close and personal God's fingerprints of grace. I've been given a privileged and ringside seat of seeing where God has been involved in this church, in individuals, over the last nine years. And it has been marvelous in our eyes. And there have been fingerprints of grace in our church since day one. And they've never left. Fingerprints, for example, of saving grace. I remember our first convert, Angie Eastwood. And I remember my wife meeting Ange at the school gate when, we were, when our kids were going to Asquith Public School. And she told me about this lady she'd met from New Zealand. And we're like, we should have her over. You know, this is good. And so she starts engaging with Ange. And before we know, uh, there's a relationship starting to form. And Emma was good friends with some of our girls. And so we invited her to a kids' club that we did in the early year. It was the one where, Brendan, you were like a French guy. It was really weird, but it was fun. <laughs> So Brendan put on this kids club. It was really fun. It was great. And Emma Eastwood came along to that. And in the night, we just gave a very short gospel presentation and invited people to church. And Ange came to church. Didn't have much of a Christianity background at all, but was interested to see what was going on and interested in the community. And she came that week, and then she came back the week after, and back the week after that, and back the week after that. I think within, it didn't feel like long. On a Sunday morning, she just said, I'm all in. I've given my life to Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. We had baptisms that afternoon. She said, okay, I've given my life to Jesus. I want to get baptized like this afternoon. And I said, whoa, I, I, you know, I've heard about this, but I've never known anybody to do it. And you, do you want to check with your husband or anything? Or do you want to have a chat? And she's like, I'm just all in. And so we baptized her that afternoon. It was wonderful. That only happens because of God's saving grace. There's been many others. Celia Tan and Nick Bede and India Wood and G. Lim and Idy Go. Many people actually that couldn't actually got saved but couldn't actually stay in this local church because they live in whoop whoop and so had to move to different churches. But we graciously and wonderfully supported that because you want people saved more than you want people added. 
It's the Lord's work. And then I think of so many kids and youth that have also been saved by God's amazing grace in the last nine years. We're sending two of them out. Noah Chavez and Abby Chavez. Going and playing a key part in this local church and this team. But nine years ago weren't following Jesus like they are today. That is his doing. That is his fingerprints of grace. But it's not just saving grace, it's also restoring grace. I remember when we first started nine years ago, a couple coming in by the name of Chris and Alison Page. They hadn't been going to church for years. They had some background, but hadn't been going for years. They weren't really that interested. But they came along for a sticky beak, really, and they'd been invited by one of the planting teams. So they thought, I'll come and have a look. You never knew. Well, they loved it. And they came back a week later, and they came back a week after that, and they came back a week after that. And they started passionately following Jesus and wanting to build the church. That's what restoring grace is all about. God in his mercy pulling people back and saying, I'm not done with you yet. I have a plan and a purpose for you. And as you start to preach the gospel and they hear the gospel, the Holy Spirit does his work and they come alive again in the Lord. You know, there are many people in our church where that's their story. You arrive burnt out You arrived exhausted. You arrived trying to work out where you were even at with the Lord. And yet now no one would even know. You wouldn't even pick it. That is an expression of the Lord's restoring grace in our church. And the sanctifying grace. I mean, one of the greatest joys I've had over the last nine years is that of seeing God at work in people's lives. God, through the Holy Spirit, moving in people's lives and actually seeing them change as the gospel brings them alive. I remember Janelle Pierce, or Janelle Smith, as it was then, nine years ago. And I remember Janelle sitting right near the front, and the first series we ever preached through at Sovereign Grace was the Ephesians, the dearest place on earth, and that God builds his church. And right at the start of Ephesians, there's a ton of messages all about how God chose us. It was his initiative. It was his sovereign grace. It was his, his initiative in pursuing us. And I remember week after week just seeing Janelle on the first couple of rows just weeping before the Lord and thinking, Mike, this girl is either really emotional or the Lord is doing some stuff. And the more we got to know Janelle, the more we started to realize and hear some of her story, in particular how she struggled with assurance, that maybe God wouldn't keep her and that she wouldn't make it but she was being ministered to by the word and the Holy Spirit was doing what the Holy Spirit does. And she started to realize, because my story started with him, it will end with him. I am safe and assured in his precious name. My friends, that's sanctifying grace. It's beautiful and it is all the Lord's doing and it should be marvelous in our eyes. I remember a husband-to-be, Ollie Pierce, coming in and he instantly liked Sovereign Grace, but I remember him telling me really early on, hey, listen, I like Sovereign Grace, but this worship thing, this sort of, (laughs) I'm not sure I'm ever going to be doing that, but uh, you know, everything else, we can run with it, I'll give it a run. And I'm like, oh, yes, that's cool, man. I'm not, you know, we're not going to try and get you if you don't want to do that. (laughs) But I remember within weeks, who is it leading the clapping? Ollie Pierce, that's who it is, man. The Lord, exactly. Everybody needs clappers. And I remember talking to him at some point along the line and just saying, what exactly happened from the, I'm not sure about that, to the, woo 
what, what happened? What happened? And he said, you know what? It just feels like I've been taught so much in my life and that God, by his grace, has put wooden structures in my life, but something happened here where it all sparked and it came alive. Well, that something is the Lord. That something is God's incredible grace and mercy that changes people's lives. I remember also Simon and Michelle Wood and seeing their lives massively change. See, we weren't friendly with Simon and Michelle Wood in the UK. It was a big church. We didn't know everybody. And one of my initial questions to Simon, actually, this was probably about 15 years ago, was actually this. So, you've been here for two years are you thinking of joining the church? Or what do you do? That was my initial conversation. I mean, they were just sort of coming in and out. It was hard to work out. Are you sort of in? Are you out? What are you thinking of? And, and so I got to know them a little bit. And they're like, yeah, we'd really like to join. And okay, great. Well, let's, let's get you involved. And let's get you in a group. And, and, you know, let's be honest, Michelle really enjoyed groups. Simon, they were optional. You know, it's like, hey, I might want to go. I might not. You know, he wasn't too keen. When it came to be a disciple by a pastor, it's like, a pastor? Whoa, I don't spend time with pastors. This is awkward. We don't want to spend time with pastors. And when it came to really giving themselves to the local church, they were involved, but they weren't, it wasn't their lives. And yet now, as I describe that about them, you don't even recognize that. Because they are the exact opposite of that. The fact that Simon is one of my best friends is hilarious to him. <laughs> I am a pastor. He doesn't hang around with pastors. But I remember in one of our early conversations with them and we were chatting about probably what it would mean to come to Australia and it's like, hey, listen, I think if you come, you would be an example to the flock and that's going to mean probably reading. And I already had like a pile of books. Woo, it's going to mean these. And I remember him looking at them going, oh my goodness, they're books. I'm like, I know. But read these books. And, and it was really one of the precious moments of the last 12, 13, 14 years as they started to read these books. God was bringing them alive. The values that we all treasure became their values. They started to abide them, not because I'm telling them to. God was doing stuff in their lives. Their eyes changed as they encountered the Word of God and the Holy Spirit and how great God is and how wonderful the local church is. And that look in their eyes never changed. That is God. That is the grace and mercy of sanctifying Grace. What would this church be like without Coyote Christina Williams and Simon and Michelle Wood? It would be very different. But how kind of the Lord to give us these gifts. This, this church has been filled with sanctifying grace. It's also been filled with sustaining grace. Job tells us, for as sure as sparks fly upwards, troubles fall. And they do. Things happen in our lives. Things can be difficult in our lives. And yet there is also sustaining grace where people seem to grasp something of the Lord that changes their life. Think of Yui Chua just recently. He's been very ill. He's been in and out of hospital with a very, very low white blood cell count. And yet each and every day, he's been texting me, not to say, oh, please pray for me, please pray for me. Each and every day, he's been texting me to remind me of the kindness of the faithfulness to God to him. That he's trusting the Lord. And I spoke to Ewan just last week to say, hey, how are you going? And she said, it's remarkable. We're doing good. I'm like, that is God. That is the grace and mercy of God. There is no other explanation for it other than the kindness and mercy of the Lord. I think of Heather Cusida, who would hate me pointing her out. 
but I'm like that. I just do it anyway. Heather was one of our saints that came very early on in the church and has been a very faithful member of Sovereign Grace Church. But over many years now, has struggled with significant health challenges. And some of you may not be fully aware of that, and the reason for that is because of the lady that Heather is. She doesn't want to be an inconvenience. And for my wife and I, at different times, we've been able to reach out to Heather and seek to care for Heather. And one of the things that is remarkable to me is, listen, we're trying to serve you, but I actually I think you are serving us because you are putting on a clinic on what it looks like to trust God, what it looks like to know the Lord, what it looks like to find joy in the Lord, even when there is no expiration date in view to a sickness. I think likewise, Madam Rachel Pettit have struggled with sickness a lot at different times in the last nine years, and yet filled with joy and enthusiasm for all the Lord is doing. This story has been echoed in so many different areas of health, of marriage, of parenting, of employment. God doing things that you wouldn't have asked or imagined, but sustaining people by his grace. And then there's provisional grace. Since its very inception, God has provided for us as a church in incredible ways. Financially, he's provided for us. In facilities, he's provided for us. We started at Normanhurst Boys High School with about 3,000 desks, so that was what it felt like out at different times. And the office was actually my home. And, you know, at the point where different staff members were walking through my kitchen as my wife's doing our ironing, she felt it was time to move out. And, and God provided. He provided us with offices and Thornley, and he provided us with this place, which is amazing. It's the provision of the Lord, and he's also provided us with personnel again and again and again. I mean, I think of music directors for a start. When we started this church, I was like having to lead everything. And then Jesse Fenn took it on, which was such a gift from God. And I still remember the conversation where Jesse Fenn is telling me he's thinking about moving to the United States. And I'm thinking, I have a wonderful plan for your life, and it doesn't involve the States. <laughs> I said, okay, Lord, would you provide? What do we need now? And that's when Henry came along. And the Lord provided us for Henry. And then Henry said, I, I think the Lord's moving us to Parramatta. And once again, you think, I have a wonderful plan for your life, and it does not involve Parramatta. <laughs> and it was about that time that a man contacts for us from Dubai, who's a pastor, who's been doing worship for years, saying, hey, listen, we're thinking about relocating to Sydney and joining your church. What do you think? Oh, I'll tell you what I think. <laughs> I think the Lord is in this, yes. Let me think. Am I you in this? Yes, he's in this, I've checked. <laughs> It was lengthier than that, but I kid you not. It was just the kindness of the Lord providing for us. And he's done it all the time. Whether it be kids workers or rosters or leaders or pastors, he is the one that provides again and again and again. Listen, here's my point. He not only initiated this church, he's building it as well. It always has been. People can come and go. Leaders can come and go. He does not come and go. His faithfulness is unchanging. It always will be, because it's unchanging grace. And here's then what I want you to understand, just by way of conclusion. He will always be the one who is building this church. Given the realities of life, there are so many things in life we can't be sure of. Can you be sure of your health? Not really. Can you be sure of your financial stability? No, not really. 
Can you be sure of your relational vibrancy that exactly whoever your friends are now will always be your friends? Not really. But here's what you can be sure of. He will build his church. That's what you can know. That's what you can stand on. That's what you can get up in the morning and believe. It is him. He will build this church. It's why Paul says that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. He will. Why? Because he is building his church. It's not primarily about me. It's not primarily about us. It's about the grace and mercy of the unchanging king. He is the one who is building his church. And my friends, he always will be. It's so easy in our zeal and joy and exuberance to wrongly think that actually maybe we're building this for God. Maybe we're doing this for him. People have been doing that for hundreds of years. The first one I know of that did it was King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, David has finally become king. And it is a, a complete rags to riches story. He's the youngest brother of, uh, youngest of Jesse's eight sons. He's a shepherd boy, indicated to us that he is the lowest rung on the ladder. No one is really interested in the shepherd boy. And at age of 30, David does become king. Saul, the people's choice, is dead and God crowns David as king. And he quickly blesses David. He gives him victory over the Jebusites, victory over the Philistines, the long-term arch enemy of the Israelite nation. And as David finally sits down then on his earthly throne in Jerusalem, he sits before the Lord and his premise is, I love you, I'm amazed by you, it is a scandal I'm doing anything, I was just a shepherd boy years previous, and so I want to do something for you. And so here's what I'm going to do for you, I'm going to build you a house. It came from zeal, it came from exuberance, it was entirely understandable. But in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God sits his son down and through the prophet Nathan simply says this to him. No, son. I'm going to build you a house. It's not about you. It's about me. And sovereign grace, that's what he's still doing today. It is him, Jesus Christ himself, who is truly building his church. It's always him. So my friends, I want to encourage you then. May we always keep looking up. The glory belongs to him today. All glory and praise and gaze needs to go to him as the King of kings and Lord of lords. And likewise, all hope and confidence and joy for the future belongs to him. So Sovereign Grace Church of Parramatta, the Sovereign Grace Church of Sydney, may we always keep looking up because he's building his church. Let's pray. Well, Lord, though our sins, they are many, your mercy is more. Lord, I thank you for your hold on our lives. I thank you that before the foundation of the earth, you chose us and you created us for moments like this. This is our time. We get a short window in our humanity to serve you and to invest our lives into serving you. And yet, Lord, we want to acknowledge in this moment that right at the bottom of it all lies you. 
It's your goodness and your faithfulness. So Lord, would you receive all the glory for today. And Lord, as we step forward today, we trust in you. Whatever befalls us, whatever we see with our eyes, we trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I think it's time for an ordination. Let's invite Riley on up. This is a special day. Nine years ago, praying for this moment, now the Lord has answered our prayer. My brother, you are an answer to our prayer. It has been a privilege to serve alongside you. It will still be a privilege to serve you. And I'm just really proud of you. And the way you've lived your life, and the way you've shown yourself as one approved, you're ready for this, or as ready as you're ever going to be. And the Lord is faithful. So why don't you stand at the front and I'm going to ask Riley a series of questions. And this is what he's committing to you guys. He's not becoming our pastor today as such, but he is becoming your pastor. I'm sorry about that. (laughs) And so I have a series of questions for Riley where he's going to be committing to you and then I'm going to ask us all to stand and I want you to acknowledge things back to him. Because that's the way it works. In Hebrews 13, it talks about the importance of pastoral ministry. But it also talks about the importance of responding to pastoral ministry. Otherwise, it doesn't work. And so, Riley, these are my questions for you, brother. Do you promise to shepherd the flock of God, not under compulsion, but willingly, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being an example to the flock? Do you promise to faithfully guard the flock over you, which the Holy Spirit has made you an overseer? And do you promise to protect that flock from false teaching, division, and dissension? I do. Do you promise to care for the flock of God, not as a hireling, but as an under-shepherd of the great shepherd, caring for his sheep as the precious ones for whom he died? Do you, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and this congregation, promise to preach the word in season and out of season? And do you promise to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience, enduring suffering, while remaining sober-minded in all of your preaching and teaching? And when you do the work of an evangelist among those whom God has given you charge? Do you declare sincerely before God, that you believe all the articles and points of doctrine contained in the sovereign grace statement of faith fully agree with the scriptures? Do you own that statement as the statement and confession of your faith? And do you promise to teach and defend these doctrines in public and in private? I do. Do you promise further that if in the future you come to have reservations about any of these doctrines, you will share these reservations with your eldership and the regional assembly of elders? Do you promise to keep a close watch on yourself and to walk humbly before others, to be self-suspicious of your own motives, to invite criticism from others, and to make yourself accountable to those whom God has put in your life? Do you submit without exception to the explicitly mandated practices of the Sovereign Grace Book of Church Order, affirming that the form of government is a wise and suitable application of scriptural principles? 
Do you promise to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel and to show yourself in all respects, in action and in speech, to be a model of good works, integrity and dignity so that neither the church nor our Saviour Jesus Christ nor the gospel may be brought into reproach? Do you promise to continually seek the gifts of the Spirit that you may serve God's people, not in the energy of the flesh, but in the power of the Holy Spirit, and to carry out your ministry without fear of man. Well done, my friend. Let's stand as a congregation. And we don't all need to answer these, but I don't want you guys to answer these. And these are my four questions for you. Do you, the people of Sovereign Grace Church of Parramatta, receive Riley Spring as your pastor? Do you promise to receive the word of truth from him with meekness and love and to submit to him in the due biblical exercise of his leadership? Do you promise to supply him with whatever material support he may need to fulfill his ministry among you wherever that is possible? Do you promise to encourage him in his labours and to assist his ministry and leadership for your spiritual edification, the evangelization of the lost, and the promotion of God's glory. I'd like to ask my fellow elders Patrick and Brendan to come out and lay hands on Riley. I'd really like to ask Maddie as well to come up, and Emma's going to pray for you. I wanted Maddie to come up because although Maddie's obviously not been ordained to pastoral ministry, our wives play a massive part. No one encourages me more than my wife. No one gives me more wisdom than my wife. No one possibly protects me more than my wife. And nobody more corrects me more than my wife. And I need them all. So Maddie, as she becomes a pastor's wife today, sometimes that's going to mean standing with Riley. Sometimes that's going to mean releasing Riley. But any which way we wanted to pray for her today. So Emma, if you could come up as well.
Strengthen him, Lord, for times in which he experiences the attack of the enemy or discouragement, Lord. And may you ever prosper him in the way that truly matters, which is more joy, more love, more glory for the Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, we pray this morning for this church plant, and we pray in particular for the future church plants that will come from this church plant. Lord, already we pray that you would raise up godly men who can answer the call to pastoral ministry. Lord, we pray that you would give our brother Riley a spirit of wisdom and truth to be a faithful disciple of other men. Yes. Encourage them, to train them, yes. and all of your glory. Yes. Lord, we pray for the first people to be saved in Sovereign Grace Church of Paramount. Yes, Lord. Lord, we know that you choose to involve us in your work and mission, not because you need us to quite enjoy. And so we pray that this church will experience much joy as they welcome many people who don't know a loss and do not know. And Lord, we pray for the team as they come to, to serve and to follow the Lord Jesus and to submit to the leadership of Rara. And we pray, Lord, for this church. And we pray that you will give them much grace to encourage our God for the glory of Jesus. And we pray. Amen. Amen. Lord, I thank you, buddy. I ask you to really take us on a great church and you always be Riley, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. 
reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Lord, we do pray those words over Riley and for Riley in this moment. Lord, we thank you for him. Lord, like you took King David, you took him out of the field. Lord, Riley's story is your story. And we recognize your hand and your fingerprints of grace leading him on this story thus far. And Lord, as he leaves us today, I thank you that you never leave. The one who's brought him safe thus far will surely lead him home. Lord, help him to keep looking up. Help him to keep trusting. Help him to keep preaching. Lord, as he once taught us to have a big God and a wide open Bible, would that be his story? Yes. And would it all be for your glory, yes. Lord? Amen. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Let's welcome our brother to pastoral ministry.